You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey, church family, happy Sunday to you. We are diving in this morning on our second week of our series on the book of First Timothy. I'm so excited to get to study God's word together again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to First Timothy chapter one. We're gonna start in verse six this morning. Before we get there, let me recap last week for you. So Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy is serving as the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. We saw at the beginning of chapter one, Paul says, hey, Timothy, I need you to stay put so you can defend against false teaching and false teachers. Paul says that the aim, the goal of right doctrine, right instruction is that we as the people, the family, the household, the church of God would grow up into maturity, that we would learn what it means to be a people of love. And so what we're gonna see this week is we're actually gonna dive into what is the specific false teaching that Paul is arguing against? What are the specific lies that these people, these false teachers, are spreading in the church at Ephesus. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. Let's start in verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we see in verses six and seven, Paul says that these false teachers are mishandling the law. When he says the law here, what he's talking about is the Mosaic law. It's the Old Testament commands found in the first five books of the Old Testament that God gave his people, the Israelites. And the goal behind these commands was that the people of God would know what it looks like for them to be set apart as holy before others and before God. And so these commands can be summarized in the 10 commandments, which you might be familiar with, but in reality, there were actually over 600 different commands that God had given to the people of Israel. What's happening in the church at Ephesus is that certain teachers had come in. They had become obsessed with what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies. In other words, they're going around reading all of this Jewish teaching that was extra biblical. It was outside of what was thought of as being the Old Testament. It was extra laws and rules and regulations that they were trying to insert and put on the same level as the commands of the Old Testament. And what they were teaching was, hey, you have to do these things. People in Ephesus, you must do these things to be right with God. If you accomplish this list, if you fulfill these tasks, if you obey these commands, you will be right and clean before the Lord. So Paul calls them out on it. He says, hey, they don't know what they're saying or what they're even talking about. They don't have a clue. They're just guessing and babbling and they don't know anything. And then what Paul does with the rest of the chapter is so interesting. So he's going to defend the truth against false teachers, and he's going to do so in two ways. So first, Paul's going to talk about the proper use of the law. How should these Christians post-Jesus, those after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, think about these commands of God? In other words, how do New Testament Christians think about the Old Testament commands? Do we just disregard it and throw the law out entirely? Do we have to follow every single law? What do we do with these commands of God? Secondly, after teaching on the proper use of the law, Paul's gonna turn to his own story. 
He's going to use his own testimony to show how the law and grace work together. How do these two things coexist? Let's start with what Paul teaches about the law. Verse eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul starts with acknowledging this shouldn't be any new information. We know the law is good. We know that it has its purposes if you know how to use it. So we don't want to just disregard it altogether. We don't throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater. The law is good. We just know how, have to know how to use it correctly. Verse nine, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So if you read through the New Testament, what you'll see is three different uses that the New Testament authors give to the Old Testament law of God. Three different uses. Theologians often call it the threefold use of God's law. Let's talk about these three real quick. The first use of God's law is to restrain sin to restrain sin. And in other words, the law works to curb sin. It has some amount of restraint of sin for both the Christian and the non-Christian. It doesn't change hearts, but it does help restrict behavior. So think about it this way. In our nation, we have a law that says you cannot murder. That is a law that we have. Now there are definitely people that disregard this law and don't pay attention to it. And they still commit this terrible act. They still murder other people. But there's also a whole group of other people that because this is a law will not do that. This law doesn't change their hearts, but it does curb. It does restrict their behavior. This is one of the uses we see of God's law. It restrains sin, both in the Christian and non-Christian alike. That's the first. The second use of the law is to show God's design for life. To show God's design for life. One commentator puts it this way. He says, as, as guidelines for changed lives. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross, we're given new hearts and the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. And so we're actually drawn to the law of God. We're drawn to study it and to meditate on it, to think about it and to apply it to our lives. We see in the law what God designs for his people. We as Christians through the law are guided towards paths of righteousness and life. The Psalm says it's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. It shows how we are to live as the people of God. So that's the first two uses of the law. It restrains sin and it shows God's design for life. And then we're going to see the third one. And this is actually the one that Paul is talking about here. The third use of the law to expose our sinfulness, to expose our sinfulness. So while God's law tells us, hey, hold up, don't do this, do this instead, it actually doesn't keep us or change our hearts. We eventually, we give in. Even though it might curb our behavior for a little bit, eventually we disobey. Eventually we go against God's design for our lives. And that's what the third use of the law does. It proves to us that we aren't holy before the Lord. It's a mirror. 
It exposes what is true about all of us, that we are sinners, that we rebel against God. So false teachers in the church at Ephesus are bringing in these parts of the Jewish law. And they're saying, you have to do these things to be right with God. We're gonna see Paul address this heavily in 1 Timothy chapter four, where they're saying, hey, follow this, do this, do these things, and you'll be holy and clean before God. And Paul emphatically responds, actually, no. Here's the point of the law. It's given for lawbreakers. It's given for the lawless and the disobedient. It's given to show us. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how much good we think we've done. All of us fall short. We don't measure up to the standard. Paul says it this way in in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 and verse 20. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. His being God. No human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is a mirror to show us that we don't measure up. Maybe thinking at this point, well, that, that sounds kind of harsh. Those, those verses, they sound kind of rough. I mean, I mean, no one does good. Like I, I do lots of good, right? Like I, I help my neighbor. I care for those in need. I serve occasionally. I'm a generally patient and kind of okay person. I don't get road rage that often. I'm, I'm patient as I can be with my kids. I love my spouse. I don't date losers or jerks. I, I try to give some money away and be generous. We might be thinking, yeah, no one does good. I do all of these good things. And I'm, I'm not saying that we don't do any of those good things. I'm not saying we don't have any of those good actions, but what's wrong with this line of thinking is that we think we set the standard for good enough. And we love to move the target that we're aiming for to whatever we're hitting. And to be honest, even when we set the goodness standard, we don't even live up to that. So if I recorded you every time you said someone should or should not do something, and then I used your own standards to measure up against your life, you would fail your own test. We don't even measure up to our own standards. And there's an even bigger problem for us. We don't set the standard God does. God sets the holiness standard. Not only does he set the standard, he himself is the standard. God's holiness, God's goodness is the bar. And the law shows us that none of us can match that standard. It's a mirror that gives so much clarity to our lived reality. We do not measure up. And just think about the 10 commandments alone. Right, so the Bible in James 2, 10 says, if you break one commandment, you're guilty as if you've broken the whole of the law. Let me just give you a couple of them. A few of the 10 commandments. I want you to do a little self-diagnostic at home. See how you're doing, living up to these. I'll give you a few. The first, commandment number 10, you shall not covet. Have you ever wanted what someone else has? You ever wanted their marriage? You ever wanted their singleness? You ever wanted their kids? You ever wanted their lack of kids? You ever wanted their bank account or their job or their wallet? Have you ever wanted what someone else has because you believe what you have isn't enough and what they have would make you happy? Let me give you another one. Commandment number nine, you shall not lie. You ever exaggerated a story just to impress someone? You ever changed just a couple of details to make yourself look a little bit better? Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. 
proof that your wonderful kids are sinners just like you and like me. Commandment number one, the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. You ever love anything more than God? You ever desire or pursue anything more than God? I mean, it takes two seconds to read God's law and see, well, I give up. I don't measure up. I don't meet this standard. If I break one, it's like I'm guilty of breaking all of them. I have no shot. I have no chance. But what happens is we're all tempted to think based on our standard of goodness that we're doing okay. We're hanging in there. But listen, when it comes to God's goodness, we're not even on the radar. We're not even on the map. We're not even playing on the same playing field. We're not even in the same universe. Now at this point, it might come with some frustration because we typically have an overinflated view of ourselves, right? So rather than letting the law be a mirror to show us that, that we and our sin are the problem, we start to view the law as the problem. We start to view the standard of goodness as the problem. We start to think things like, well, if this goodness I have to reach, if this is it and I just can't reach it, then I have to shift the target, right? Surely God will grade on a curve. And then if I remove this law that I don't really like and I, I take away that law that I'm just not really good at following and I, I elevate the ones that I'm pretty okay at and pretty decent at, then everything's gonna be okay. We twist it. Instead of us and our sin being the problem, the law becomes the problem. The law becomes the enemy, but the law is not the enemy. The law is a gift. The law is a, a mirror. It's, it's given as a reflection of the character of God. It's an outpouring of his goodness, not to harm us or to hold us back or to keep us from doing what we want and having fun or whatever. His law is good and it's delightful. He's God. He created the world. He knows the best way that we should live. He knows how things are supposed to go. And in his goodness, he has shown us, hey, this is how life is supposed to be lived. We read in Deuteronomy chapter six, right after God gave his people the 10 commandments that the law was quote, for our good always. I would see in God's law, how we are supposed to live, how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to be. The law is a, a mirror. It shows us, hey, none of us can measure up, but the, the problem with the mirror is that it can't fix the problem. The problem with a mirror is I can show you, hey, this is what's off, this is what's wrong, but it can do nothing to actually fix the problem or clean up the mess. We need something or rather someone else. That's where we get to Paul's story. Let's pick it up. First Timothy 1, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So here's Paul's story. Paul was a zealot for the Jewish faith. He was as religious as they come. This is what we read in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was a zealous dude. He was so zealous. He did whatever it would take to stamp out the followers of Jesus. And his argument in Philippians 3, 6 is basically, hey, if anyone could be declared righteous by following the law, it's me. I'm the guy. If anybody else has confidence in the flesh, it's nothing like my confidence. I was the guy. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 13, in the middle of me being this guy, that's where God found me. 
I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent opponent of God thinking the whole time that I was doing the right thing. Thinking the whole time I was fulfilling this standard of goodness that I was called to. Thinking this whole time I was gonna earn right standing before God. You see, Paul's story is a case study of why good intentions don't actually matter. You could have all the right intentions and not actually live out what God has called you to live out. You can think, yeah, yeah, I know God says this is wrong, but like, I really meant well. Like my heart was good in it. Like I know it was off. I know it was not what God calls me to, but like I meant well, like I meant good. Listen, Paul had wonderful intentions and he was also wonderfully wrong. He thought he was doing exactly the right thing. And yet the whole time he was separated from God, he was condemned by God, an enemy of God, but the good news is that God met him in the midst of all of that. That's what he says in verse 13. I wanna make sure you hear this verse. He says, in the middle of all that, but I received mercy. I, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So everyone, Everyone, whether you're secular or religious, whether you're ancient or modern, Eastern or Western, everyone who sees the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of their own soul have the same response to the problem. We try to fix it. Every single one of us who sees brokenness tries to fix it. We try to fix it with religion. We try to fix it by pushing off religion. We try to fix it with more laws. We try to fix it with less laws. We try to fix it with therapy and counseling and self-help books and workout and diet plans. The, the good news the world tries to offer to our deepest and truest need, the hope every other religion or worldview has to offer is to try to do more, try to earn it, try to do one more thing. We hear the refrain of this good news over and over and over again. And it sounds like, hey, if you just give more to the poor, just improve yourself. Just, you know, become a better person, learn from your mistakes, obey the pillars, empty yourself, connect with the divine. You have to be the one to try to fix it. All of us, we try to be good on our own. We try to be good on our own, but then here comes the good news of Jesus. And it's absolutely categorically different from what all other people think. Here's the good news. We always want to say, go and do. But the gospel of Jesus says, come and receive. We always wanna say, go and do more. Try to prove it, try to fix it, try to earn it. The gospel of Jesus says, no, come and receive. Paul says, I received mercy. I received grace. Paul says, I went from trying to earn, trying to do enough, trying to prove myself, trying to be good enough, trying to fix it all to a posture of receiving. And look at what happens. The grace of Jesus overflowed with faith and love. I mean, how, how shocking is the beauty of the gospel? That salvation is a gift to be received. The law is good if it's used lawfully as a mirror into our sinfulness and brokenness. That's proof that you and I, that none of us can measure up. And so we must receive. And then Paul summarizes his teaching and his testimony. Verse 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you want a summation of the gospel, it's right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
Jesus came to save sinners. That's what he says in Mark 2. He says, it's the sick who need a doctor. Jesus came to rescue all who would give up trying to be self-sufficient, all who would give up trying to do it on our own, all who would, instead of of leaning on our own attempts at goodness or holiness or righteousness or self-sufficiency, would instead throw ourselves on the mercy and grace and love of Jesus to own and to believe and admit, "I I don't deserve this. And I can't earn this, but it's a gift that I receive. The gospel is so crazy and that it doesn't just allow us to be broken. It doesn't just allow us to be needy and sinful and messed up. The gospel actually requires it. A prerequisite to receiving the grace of God is owning the reality of your sin. It doesn't just say, hey, you can be broken. You can be messed up. You can be sinful. You can bring all that, but you actually must be. You must own the reality and the fact that you are sinful and that you are broken, that you are in need of a savior. The law is a mirror to show us we don't measure up. And yet the gospel says, come and receive. A few weeks ago for for Good Friday, we listened to a song together called Come Ye Sinners. And I just wanted to read some of the lyrics that I thought were were so uh, prevalent to this. It says, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger, not of fitness fondly dream, but all the fitness that he requireth is to feel your need of him. It's a prerequisite. You have to own the reality. I'm a sinner in need of a savior, but it didn't just stop there. Paul doesn't just acknowledge it one time and say, yeah, I was a sinner. Now I, can, now I can get going with my life. Yeah, I admit I needed Jesus, but now I'm good. Now I can just do more. Now I can just go figure it out on my own. Notice what he says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Not was the foremost, am the foremost. Current, now, present tense. The gospel isn't something you just check yes to once and then you move on. You don't just start by grace, accept Jesus. All right, now I gotta go get busy becoming a better person and doing more and earning more. The gospel is a well that you learn to swim deeper and deeper and deeper into. We never move past being a recipient first, continually receiving the grace and love and mercy of God. So let me tell you what this means as we we turn towards closing. This means we've got to get what this whole Christianity thing what this whole following Jesus thing is all about. Following Jesus is not about making yourself better. It's not about I was walking on the wrong path and now I'm on the right path. It's not about I pulled myself up and I made some healthy life changes. Following Jesus is about recognizing and believing I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I was lost and now I'm found. This is the good news our church and our lives are to be grounded upon this trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul's example proves this reality. Christ came for sinners. Paul's story is proof. None of us are excluded from this good news. Listen, Paul was the best of us. He was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. You don't get much better or much more law following than Paul. And Paul was also a murderer. So you you get beat on both ends. You get beat. He's the best of us and he's the worst of us both. And he says the gospel met him there. It means none of us 
are too good or too bad for the beauty of the gospel, for the beauty of the grace of Jesus. It's for all of us. It's for the law follower and the law breaker. So to the the law breakers, there's some of you listening right now and it's the hardest thing you could ever do to believe that you are within the saving grasp of Jesus. Like that's just shocking to you. Never in your life could you imagine that God would love you, that he would forgive you, that he would actually invite you in to know him and to be a part of his family and his kingdom. I want you to hear me on this. The gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. I don't care if you think you're the worst person who has ever walked the face of the earth. I don't care if you wake up every morning and your guilt and your shame and your sin and your brokenness or what you wake up thinking about. I don't care when you go to bed at night, if your sin and your guilt and your shame and your brokenness or what you go to bed thinking about. I don't care if it hits you right in the face each and every day, the reality you live with. Yeah, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. No way that God could ever save me. I want you to hear this. This gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. I know you're beat up. I know you're broken. I know you're cast down. I know you feel like you're in chains. I know you're addicted. I know you feel lost. I know you feel empty. I know you feel stuck. I know you feel hopeless. I know you feel ashamed. I know you feel guilt-written. Listen, this gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came into the world, took on flesh, died the death that you and your sins deserved and yet rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death so that you could be forgiven and washed clean and made new and brought up into the family of God. Would you believe it? Would you trust it? Would you cling to the grace and mercies that are available to you? Would you stop and receive? Would you trust? Would you throw yourself on the cross? You are not out of the reach of the hand of God. Now to the law followers. I don't mean those of us trying to live up to the Jewish law. I mean, all of us who are trying to be self-sufficient living up to our own law, setting our own standard of goodness, thinking we're good enough and strong enough and tough enough and self-sufficient enough. Those of us who think all we need to be okay is to, to work a little harder and do a little more. One more technique, one more plan, one more thing, and then we've got it. Those of us who think we can just do enough churchy things to get God's approval. If I just read my Bible a little more, if I just watch a few more sermons, if I just pray for a few more minutes, then I'll be good with God. I want you to hear me this gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. As much as you think you can do a little more or that you're okay or that you've got it all together, the truth is that that title sinners is all of us. It's you and it's me because we don't set the standard. God does. We can't match or even be on the same playing field as his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness. So we can't be near him. We can't be a part of his family based on our own doing and earning and striving. The invitation of Christ for you this morning is to stop and to receive, to cease your striving, whatever it looks like. You know, it's not working. You know that you cannot measure up. You know that it leaves you feeling empty. You know that your soul longs for rest. You know that you desire to return home to your father. You know that just one more thing becomes one more thing becomes one more thing. And it's never gonna be enough or feel like enough. Stop and receive. This gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save 
sinners. Everyone else would tell you, go and do a little more, try a little more, work a little harder. Gospel of Jesus says, stop and receive. Trust that Christ's sacrifice was enough. He paid for your sins, that he is the way. He is the means by which you will be made right with God. Family, this is, this is the gospel of Jesus. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's the truth and good news that we have to be grounded upon as a church and as a people. So this week in your group time, as you have the opportunity, confess your sin, own it, repent of it. Acknowledge I am the worst of sinners and allow others and the Lord to push grace to you, to help you to see I need Jesus that not only am I allowed to be broken, it's actually a requirement because that's where Jesus finds me. And that's where I receive. This week in your your time with the Lord, as you're reading through our Bible reading plan, as you're praying, bring your whole self before the Lord, all of it, sin and all, and receive mercy and grace from him. This gospel is for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. I wanna end this morning where Paul ends, 1 Timothy 1, 17. He ends in worship. And I want us to end in worship in light of this glorious gospel of Jesus. This is what he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.